wonderful. Thank you once again for the outstanding contribution you've all made, simply being here, being such a tremendous people in terms of receiving ministry, responding to ministry, appreciating ministry. We thank God for every one of you. So great to be together, and I'm so grateful to Nigel for his uh, expressing our appreciation to so many people behind the scenes as well as on the platform. We can't uh, just go on alone as preachers. We are a family on the move together. And I thank every one of you for the prioritizing of time, being here, setting aside time. I know it's not easy, and I'm so grateful to every one of you for being here. I trust that will come across more and more in the word that I want to share with you now. So if you'd like to turn to the book of Judges, please. We're going to conclude what I began on the opening night in Judges and in chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. You recall that we already read in Isaiah chapter 9 that of the increase of the government of Christ there will be no end. This one appointed to sit on David's throne, not somewhere in Jerusalem, but through the heavens now, at the right hand of the majesty on high, established with all authority in heaven and on earth. This kingdom is going to grow and grow and grow among the nations. There will be no end to its increase. And then we find that strange phrase just tucked in there in Isaiah chapter 9, which says that it will be like the battle of Midian. Something about this battle that we're going to look at this morning that captures something of the value, the style, the way in which this ever-increasing government will come to nation after nation after nation. There'll be times of setback, there'll be times of darkness, there'll be times when it doesn't look encouraging, and then God will come freshly. And we saw the pattern of God in the midst of a time of decline, sometimes judging his own people, because God is dynamically over these events. It's not just an evolution that has a sort of natural developing outworking, some graph that you can project into the future and say that by five years we'll be there, by 25 years we'll be there. It's not like that. Never has been like that through church history, Old Testament history. There have been times when there's been serious decline, even like in Elijah's day, when only 7,000 were still being faithful. And God isn't threatened when the church goes through a period of decline because God is looking for purity of devotion before he wants to multiply what he's got. And so there are seasons when, yes, it looks dark, but the ultimate purpose of God will be that every tongue, tribe, nation and people will be reached and brought in on that great day. So there are seasons of decline. And in those seasons of decline, God begins to humble us. We begin to cry to him again and say, God, where's the answer? Where are you? Why isn't it happening? And out of our humbling of ourselves and seeking of his face, we tend to see this uh, turning thing that happens, that God raises up another prophetic voice, another word that brings us back to basics, back to God, the God of covenant faithfulness, reminds us that we can't just do religion alone. Even as he did in Samuel's day, there was that time of darkness, and then God just brought a prophetic word, began to raise a new voice. It meant pulling stuff down, as well as something new emerging. On the back of that prophetic voice in Samuel comes the great anointed new leadership in David. Out from that comes a great army. And then even with our Lord Jesus Christ, in a time of serious decline, 
John the Baptist emerges, reminds people of the values, reminds them who they are, who God is. After a long, long season, hardly anyone is still waiting, looking. Just a remnant, just a small crowd, looking, waiting. One or two individuals are named. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene. It's like springtime in the beginning of Luke's Gospel as you hear a voice and another voice and a a prophetic song. And we've not heard a prophetic song for ages and God's back in business. God's on the move. A prophetic voice comes, then wonderful anointed Savior emerges out from that, an army that's still going around the world. That pattern will come and go and will break out. Church history shows it and we, I believe, are to see it and put ourselves, as it were, right in this picture that there's something about this ever-increasing army that is like the Battle of Midian, Isaiah the prophet says. There's some features. And so we've seen something of the uh, preparatory work. God calls a man. It doesn't have to be a strong man. In fact, God seems to be quite happy using weak men. He gets the glory. He holds the reins. He calls a weak man, a weak man who, yes, we met with him the other evening. He longed for more. God found in him someone who was longing for something better. I know that found an echo in many of our hearts. Yes, we long for more. That's something that's happened in our heart. We can't settle for the status quo. We can't say, well, this is it then. No, no, surely there must be more than this. Something in us is longing for more. And that's the one thing Gideon, if you like, brought to the table. Surely if the Lord's with us, why is it like this? That's what he was living with. And then God came, God pointed out in his own life that in the midst of a time of spiritual decline, his own family's loyalty had become divided. Even in his own home, there was a lack of loyalty. Even in his own home, there was spiritual adultery. They had another God at home. Not just out there in the nation, at home. Seriously, in their own home, there was compromise. And Gideon had to be ruthless in pulling down that other God and understanding God's perspective. This is like adultery. I want your love. As we heard so wonderfully through the prophetic song, He's watching over us jealously. He wants our love. He sees when we compromise. He sees when we flirt with another God. Another value system we give our heart to. When something unclean captivates us and we we go after it for short-term satisfaction, he's saying, hey, listen, I'm the fountain of joy. Where are you going? I'm your bridegroom. What are you doing? It's personal. It's not just principles and rules. Oh, I broke a rule. You broke a heart. You grieved the Lord. You grieved his spirit. God wants it to be personal in our lives, that we understand sin is not just a matter of blotting my copybook. It's somehow offending my lover. It's like flirting in front of the one you love with somebody else. God said, come on, give me a pure heart. So Israel was flirting with other gods when he was their only god. He brought them out of Egypt. And so Gideon courageously dealt with the issue. Though there were family matters in hand, there was a price to pay, there was a risk to take. We didn't look in detail at that, but you can see it all in the passage. But God vindicated him. And when we begin to take steps, say, right, I will sort my life out. I want to be thorough. I want to be pure. I want to be unmixed. It came a big time in my life when I was about mobilized age. When God said to me, your life's very mixed. Who are you going to serve? 
It was a big, big decision. Quite a costly one to say, right, you, Lord, I'm going to serve only you. Changed everything in my life. Costly, lost lots of friends. They're costly decisions. I pulled down. And Gideon went through those things. And then, hallelujah, it says he was clothed with the Spirit. Oh, if one hadn't experienced the clothing of the Spirit, if, if God hadn't come in Pentecostal power, where would we be? And that's for us individually. Let's not play it down. Let's not lose it. Let's not ignore it, having fought for it. Let's not get muddled about it. When God wants to revive in our lives the coming upon of the Spirit, the Spirit came upon them, laid his hands on them, and the Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues. Let's not get muddled about it. That's the mark of the New Testament church. No longer just an isolated Gideon, but it's for all of us. And without that empowering, we're not going to get the job done. So we've seen this preparation, and now we come to the battle itself here in Judges 7. I'm going to read uh, most of it through with you, okay? So I'm reading uh, from the NASB. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give to Midian into their hands. For Israel will become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I'll test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that... He of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, this one, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate every one who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lacked and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people, each man, go to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterwards your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So they went, he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outposts of the army that was at the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were there without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. He said, behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it. 
so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. He divided the 300 men into three companies. He put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. He said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp and beginning of the middle watch, when they had just posted the watch, they blew the trumpets, smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands, the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. And when they blew three hundred trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army, and the army fled. Father, we thank you for this account of an act of faith, your faithfulness. We ask right now in Jesus' name that we will be able to apply these principles, Lord, to wherever you've placed us, that we might in our generation and life see the outworking of this ever-increasing government of Christ and see some of the clues in this battle of Midian, Lord, that we might reenact it again and again in the towns from which we come. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've seen God's preparation. We've seen the prophetic explanation of what's happening. We've seen God begin to engage with an individual, begin to work in the heart of a man. God always begins to engage, uh, maybe with a particular person, maybe with a small group of people. As he came on that group in Oxford in Wesley's day, he starts to engage with someone or a group, and out of that, comes with a phenomenal work of God. So here we see the beginning, but now we want to move on today to look at this army. And it resembles the army of God. As it says of David's army, it became like the army of God. And uh, we are part of that great army of God today. And I want to look at some of the characteristics of the army this morning. The first thing about the this army was that they were an army of faith. Okay, not just a leader of faith, which we looked at briefly uh, the other evening, but here an army of faith. The whole army was characterized by faith. Now, how do I know that? Well, the invitation was, let all the fearful go home. That leaves the believers. That leaves those who are not yielding to fear, but living by faith. Now that wasn't an unusual statement in that in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 8 you will find that was always their approach to warfare. That was something that was written in uh, their style of working that the fearful should not let that contagion run through the army and so fearful people were not to engage in the battle. 
And of course, on this occasion, when they were so outnumbered, I guess fear was at a high level. And certainly here, these uh, withdraw. And sadly, it keeps them from their birthright of being triumphant soldiers. I want to look at this from both sides. We know that there was a sovereign purpose in God. But I just want us to see the genuine danger of fear. And how fear takes people out of the battle. If you just study this in the Word, and I've been spending some time on this, it's, fear is a great enemy. 22,000 didn't take part. Two-thirds didn't take part out of their own choice. I'd rather not be in the battle, thank you. I'd rather go home. I'd rather not engage. I'd rather not prove the Lord. I'd rather not have the excitement. I'd rather not get in there. I'd rather go home, thank you. Two-thirds was their testimony. Now, fear is a, a terrible, terrible power that can captivate people and shape their lives. Can shape them as individuals, can shape whole churches. Fear can shape you. Fear can dominate your life and affect your decisions, the things you do, the escapades you'll go on. God watches over us in that area. And fear will hold sway for some right through to the end. In fact, it says in Revelation 21.8, when it's rounding everything up and speaking of those who enter into ultimate glory and those who are left outside, there is in Revelation 21.8 a list of foul things that describe those who are left outside. Includes liars and murderers and sorcerers. But the first on the list is this, the fearful. That's the first on the list of dreadful things, the fearful, those who would not engage, those who wouldn't open their minds for fear, those who would not give the gospel a chance, if you like. We see that testified to in John 12 and 42. It says this, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him for fear of being put out of the synagogue. The fear of the implications of owning his lordship, although it says plainly they believed in him, but they wouldn't own him because the implications were too great. The implications of being wholehearted about Jesus are significant and fear of not facing up to those implications can cut you right out. It's a very great power that we need to look at very carefully. Fear takes many forms. In our culture in the UK, it can just be fear of mockery, fear of looking foolish. That's pretty low level, really, but could still dominate people's lives. Fear of looking foolish, fear of not seeming sophisticated. Fear that if you started, you wouldn't be able to keep it up. Fear of the future, what will happen to me? Letting your imagination run forward, what on earth is going to happen? Letting your imagination get to places that grace hasn't reached yet. So you live dominated by fears. No, no, but God's there for you each day. And fear can rob you of your joy. Fear can affect your life from your waking moments. Fear come creeping in, whispering in your heart. Fear is a powerful enemy. It can paralyze you. It can cripple you. It can affect your decisions. I know it certainly did for me as a a young Christian when I first knew the Lord. And I remember going to school and putting my Scripture Union badge on. And it just needed one school teacher to mock me 
And that was it. came off the next day. I remember when I first started to preach, I was terrified of preaching. The very thought, I, I thought in my heart, God said, I want you to uh, serve me. I'm looking for you to be a preacher. I didn't know what that was going to mean. I was still in my late teens and early 20s, those early, early days when I wasn't really clear about things. But I felt God was calling me. And my pastor said to me, oh, you need to go out and preach in the mission halls and stuff. I remember one of the first times I ever preached, I went to what was actually an old folks home. And uh, they wanted someone to do a kind of a little epilogue. And I mean, I was so terrified. And I remember I went and I had my handkerchief ready because, not because of sweating brow, but because I thought I was going to throw up. I was so scared. This is true. And for my first few times of preaching, went on for quite a while. I, I'd be scared. I'd have a handkerchief ready. If I go in there, I'm going to be so terrified. I'm going to stand in front of people and speak. The whole thought horrified me. And the first time I ever did it, I went into this old folks' home. I opened the door, walked in. There's about 25 people, and half of them are fast asleep anyway. <laughs> and I was, I was experiencing this. I said to one of the older ladies in the church at home, I said, I, I get this terrible fear I'm going to throw up when I'm going to speak. And she said, I'm sure God's just trying to keep you humble. I thought, well, I'm sure God could find a better way. <laughs> I really hate the whole thing. And, uh, but fear, it could have been enough, to be honest. In those early days, oh, forget it. I had to get through it. It seems a tiny little hurdle now, but it was the first hurdle I had to go over. You're going to keep trying to do this because it's terrifying. We have to overcome the fearful, go home. Sounds hard, doesn't it? Fearful? Go home. All right, you scared here? Get out. Just clear off. We don't want you. Now, is that what it says? Well, I don't really think so. I don't really think that's the feel of the Bible. I think if, if Gideon said this, imagine Gideon. Have we, we've already had a look at Gideon. We've seen what this guy's like. Right, all you people who are scared, go home. I know a shortcut. Come with me. <laughs> the guy's terrified. So what are we saying here? We say, all the fearful go home, but Gideon doesn't go home. Why not? Well, we're told in Hebrews 11, by faith, out of weakness, he became strong. Fear doesn't have to be the end of the story. Fear doesn't have to say, exclamation mark, full stop, that's you summed up. No, we can step out from fear, but we have to engage with faith to step out from fear. The church isn't just for all tough guys who are naturally aggressive. In fact, God chooses the weak things. So we're finding here God's incredible mercy, God's kindness. Fear not. In fact, we find Jesus again and again saying to people in all kinds of ways, don't fear, only believe. You can't do both at the same time. It's like an engine that runs on the same track. You, you can't be believing and fearing. Either one or the other is dominating your days. Fear or faith. And so we find the Lord Jesus saying again and again, don't fear. Some people say it's 365 times in the Bible. Well, you'd be hard-pressed to find 365 in the Bible. Just look at a concordance. There aren't that many. But how many times does God have to say it? And here you find that Jesus very tenderly says, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. He's just giving some teaching. He just knows our frame. He knows our tendency. He knows our vulnerability. God knows we're dust. And so it comes with such tenderness, fear not. You're of more value. Listen to my 
reasonings. God bothers to reason. He says, I know when a sparrow falls to the ground. I know the hairs on your head. Come on, don't don't be fearful. So God engages with us. He says, come on, no reason for fear. Don't make fear your home. Don't stay there. Let's hear that in our hearts. You say, well, can I go? Can I be involved? Can I give myself? Can I take this risk? God will say, listen, I know you. I'm watching over you. Fear not. We find that Jesus says to Jairus, as he's come hoping for his daughter to be healed, and Jesus, if you like, gets distracted or preoccupied with another, and the message comes, don't trouble him. It's all over. Jesus quickly, quickly turns and says, don't be afraid. Only believe. Your daughter will be well. Don't be afraid. You can't be doing both at the same time. Don't be afraid. Believe. Just believe. So sometimes it's a general statement. He says to his disciples, hey, fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good intention to give you the kingdom. He makes statements. He comes to individuals. Sometimes it comes with a kind of stern feel to it. When the disciples are in the storm and the boat's nearly going under, the waves are cascading in, the water's getting deeper and deeper, Jesus apparently asleep, and they're saying, Lord, don't you care? We perish. And it turns, he says, he turned around to them. He said, don't be afraid. Why are you so afraid? You men of little faith. So sometimes it comes tenderly to a man with little girls on the edge of death and, yeah, maybe die. Other times it comes to disciples who've been walking with him for a while. It's almost like he turns to them and says, hey, what's your problem? Don't fear. Why are you afraid? Come on, why are you afraid? Well, the storm. But, you know, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus said, let us go over to the other side. He didn't say, let us go down to the bottom. There is a commitment that we should take confidence from. He has committed himself to us. We take courage from. He is amazed sometimes that we are afraid. And we need to let that hit us with strength. So fear not. And so confidence has begun to be uh, impregnated, if you like, into Gideon. Now it's going to get into this people. But 22,000, fear dominates for them. God's looking for us to respond to opportunities for faith to grow. But we need to really engage with it. We need to really receive faith. We need to take advantage of faith. It can affect your choices. It can affect what you do. But to believe an army, to to raise up an army of faith, to say, let's go for it, let's do it, doesn't mean we have to have lots of experience. When I was reading uh, Ellicott's uh, commentary on Gideon, it says about Gideon in his commentaries where it says, when God uh, spoke to him and says, you valiant warrior, Ellicott says in his commentary, Gideon seems to, uh, being called a mighty uh, man of valor, seems to indicate that God had already distinguished, or he had already extinguished himself, distinguished himself in war. It can hardly refer to the vigor with which he was threshing the wheat. He says, well, you know, he's a mighty man. He must have known he'd done something before. That's his commentary's conclusion. If he's calling him a mighty man of valor, he must know of some battle that's not in the Bible. Because it can't be the way he's hitting the wheat. You think, no, no, you missed the point. 
that God can say to a weak man, be strong. When he came to Joshua, he said, be strong, be strong. He can pour strength into you that banishes fear. But, but faith has to engage. Abraham, it says of Abraham, becoming, being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he's able also to perform. I love that. It's one of my favorite passages in the scripture. Being fully persuaded. You've got to let God persuade you. You must engage with faith. And as leaders, we need to help our churches engage with faith. We've got to help them engage with faith. Otherwise, they'll live like mere men, ordinary people. You know, when we think about our giving, I'm, I'm so blessed last evening, I had a conversation with one of the young guys in my home church. We've just had our, our second gift day uh, this year, given another just over 100,000, the second time this year in the run-up to this conference. We preach into it. We do it over two Sundays to make sure people, everyone's engaged. And here's this young guy, and I know ends are not easy to meet. I know it's tough in his home. He, said, he sat with his wife and said, I really feel God's given us this, us this figure to go for. And they're thinking, wow, this seems crazy. How do we do this? But I feel God said it to us. So husband and wife sit there together, make their decision together, and step into faith. You see, we're beginning over years now. We preach. Come on, let's do this thing. We can do this thing. Come on, another hundred thousand. Let's do it. We can do it. Let's preach it. Let's make... And, and so people say, hey, come on. So we've got stories, dozens, scores of stories of people who said, okay, we'll do it. It's crazy. Let's pray. Let's do it. He told me last night, just as I left the meeting, we gave it. The next day, through the post, came a check for exactly the same amount that we gave. Now, isn't that an adventure? Isn't that thrilling? Isn't it great to say, come on, church, let's be a, let's be a people of faith. Let's get a reputation we can believe. We can push the barriers. But I haven't got it. I know. But God said, let him persuade you, being persuaded. We can do this thing because God said. So as a church, as a local church, we teach faith, we build faith, we lead people into exploits of faith, we go for challenges, we accomplish challenges, we give it away again, we say, come on, we'll do it again later in the year. And people start learning to be in faith. Say, we'll do this stuff. Or you can just say, oh, we're past the background. Oh, good, thank you. Or we can say, no, this is a challenge. This is an army. This is a world to take. We need to lift people. We need to help persuade them. Like Abraham became persuaded. And then they start entering into the world of excitement. The world that's risky. As that wonderful song that Reuben brought. I've seen your risks you've taken. Watched over the risks you've taken. I'm there for you. Let's raise up armies of faith. Let's not leave armies of fear who will hold back when we hit tough areas. It's our important role as leaders. So here we see an army that's an army of faith, not just an army of fear. The fear ones have gone. Let's pray, oh God, please help me as a leader to include as many as I can. I know that's not the story of Gideon, but it's the flip side of 22,000 who miss out because they choose through fear. And the book of Revelation, chapter 21, tells us multitudes miss out because they were fearful. 
Let's beware the dangers of fear. Let's see, the only answer to fear is to engage with faith. Faith isn't automatic. You must engage with it. The second thing about them was that they were an army of obedience. How was that manifested? Well, they were willing to follow leadership. These 300 we'll come to, we'll come to the story in a bit more detail in a moment. They were distinguished by this, that when Gideon said, well, this is the way we're going to do it. I want you in three groups, I want you to do this and this and this. You see, they did just that. They did what they were asked to do. There's only 300 of them, but they're thoroughly committed and obedient to the vision that's brought to them. What's significant about this end-time army, this advance of the reign of Christ, it's this kind of church that's going to do it. Churches where people say, yes, because we're learning to obey as well as walk with faith. Now, let's face the reality that ultimately obedience is a big issue Ultimately, that's what God is looking for through the preaching of the gospel among the nations. Adam was given this opportunity. You can be as God. And he chose it. Ever since which, the race has been children of disobedience. Satan tempted him to be as God. That was, that was the temptation. You can be independent. You can make your choices. And that's the human race that we want to make our choices. We want to say, well, I think, my opinion, I feel, my rights, that's people's rights, their rights. We've all got rights, human rights, my rights. And many of them are not considering, well, what about God's rights? What about God's claim as a creator and maker, the one who gives me breath and makes my heart keep beating? What about his rights? And we're not thinking that, we're thinking my rights. And so the army God is looking for is another kind of army, modelled on Jesus, who came to say this, I delight to do your will, oh my God. There's another kind of man walked the planet. A man who was the perfect man, who lived a perfect lifestyle, who in stark contrast to our human desire just to do what pleases me, did not please himself. He pleased the Father. He set up a new race on the on the earth. A new family, a people who want to be like him. He modelled it. A new humanity who delighted to do the Father's will. He says, it's my meat to do his will. I love it. It's the thing I want to do. And God is looking for that. God is not just looking for numbers. We know, especially in this country, and I'm sure many other countries, we long for juggernaut power. We long for some church that can't just be brushed aside. Foolish, nonsense, religious crazy people. We long for the kind of size that gives credibility, impact, makes people take notice. But it's got to be authentic. It's no good just having numbers. It's no good just filling a few pews. We've got to have a community of people who live a different lifestyle. Not only in the meetings, but in their homes, in the workplace, in the education place. They live a different lifestyle based on obedience. Faith and obedience. In fact, those two words come together when, jo- when Paul sums up his call. In Romans chapter 1, he says, I have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. That's my calling. I'm going out, sailing the seas, going these long journeys, coming to towns. What is my goal? Well, I've received grace to bring about obedience in these rebel pagan nations I am going to bring about, by the grace of God, an obedient community. That's a miracle. 
that God can take rebel sinners and turn them into obedient ones from the heart. Obedient from the heart, not impose rules. Not saying this is what it says. You have to do it whether you want to do it or not. No, from the heart, this miracle that there's another kind of people on the planet who want to do the will of God, who delight in it, who are thrilled about it, thinks it's a great idea, who really are persuaded God knows best, and so are radically changed from the root. They're not law keepers, reluctantly having to, but thinking, oh, it looks more fun out there. No, we're persuaded. God knows what he's talking about. We're persuaded to honour him financially, to honour him in terms of moral righteousness, not to steal things, not to flirt with other people's wives or husbands, not to steal sex before the appropriate time of marriage when sex is appropriate. So, no, God says this is the best way. Our modern generation will say, don't be silly, come on. No one lives like that. No, well, we do. As Phil Greenslade said in one of his seminars, he says... What if the aliens have come and we are them? (laughs) We are different. We live a different lifestyle. And we've got to be authentic. It's no God, someone getting close to you. So I go to this church. It's real fun. I like it. But also I do this other stuff. And no, no, no. There's got to be that purity. There's got to be obedience. And obedience is saying Jesus is Lord. There are people across the world who say, no, Jesus is Lord. He's the one who orders my life. He's the one who orders my days. So we need to be very careful because we often celebrate our freedom. One of the things we rejoice in, and for some of us, our background was religion, which was rather legalistic. And I know for myself, I'm more than happy to be associated with the the theme of grace and liberty. We need to be very, very careful what we are saying by that. Yeah, we can celebrate our freedom, our freedom from death, freedom from the fear of death. The Bible says we've been freed from that fear of death that holds people in bondage. No, we're liberated from it. We're free from legalism. We're free from the power and domination of sin. Hey, we're free. And as uh, Paul says in Galatians 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. Why has he set you free? For freedom! You think, wow, that's an amazing ending in itself. And so we can celebrate the joy, the freedom, the kind of celebration we've enjoyed in our worship, our, our joy, our praise, our liberty, that we feel free, we feel uncondemned and free. We feel sonship. We feel, I belong, Father, I'm at home with you. I'm not living under constant condemnation. I, I feel so released in this sonship. It's such a joy, such a delight. And I will not let anyone take me captive, as Paul says in Colossians 3. Let no one pull you away into captivity again and snare you. No, get free. Stay free in what God has done for us. But notice also, he says this. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brothers, but don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. See, if if we're not under law anymore... What's the alternative? How do you live this life? Well, notice Paul's answer here. He says, well, yeah, you're called to freedom. But don't let that freedom trick you. That freedom can be very subtle, can be very beguiling. It can leave you thinking, well, who cares? There's a kind of a liberty that can suddenly creep in where, well, you're just back if you're not careful to what you were before. 
your own master. And certainly as charismatics, we can be very inclined to that. Oh, the Lord Lord said to me, well, that means you're free and vindicated. And so the, the, the church is often plagued by individualism. Now, I know this is an obedient army, obedient to God, because they were willing to be obedient to leadership. Now, to conclude the verse in in Galatians 5.13, he says, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity of the flesh. The next phrase is amazing. He says, but through love, serve one another. If you get under the skin of that, you'll find that it's become each other's slave. Give a slave service to one another. CJ sent me a wonderful book recently called, I think called Slaves of Christ. Just looking at slavery as a theme throughout the Bible. Looking at Jewish slavery, Roman slavery, Greek slavery. The author points out that most Bible translations are scared of the word slave. And although it's very clear the word is slave, most Bibles translate servant. And he says that probably because we hate the associations of slavery, maybe especially the terrible black slave trade, that we think, no, we don't want that word, because it doesn't communicate quite the tone of biblical slavery. And he goes into it extremely thoroughly. I found it so instructive and helpful. Yeah, the slavery in the Roman world, the slavery in the Greek world, it it was different to the slavery we would associate with the black African slavery that took place. There was a certain amount of dignity. A slave could have slaves. A slave could become quite rich. A slave could even marry into the family. A slave could be given freedom. To be the slave of certain people was a great honor. I am this man's slave. It wasn't necessarily something of degradation at all. But bottom line is this. You aren't making any choices. You're not your own. You're not just an employee. You're a slave. You don't say, well, I'm just going. No, you're not just going. And to be flogged was acceptable. No one was going to ask anybody any questions if a slave's been flogged. I guess he needed it. No one's going to ask, ask you to answer for that. Well, he's a slave. And just to get the awareness of slavery and even to think about New Testament churches where probably it says 40% of Rome, 40% of the population of Rome were slaves. 40%. So in the local church, knowing that the poor come for the gospel more, maybe 50% of local church were slaves. So when Paul writes now, come on, there's no more slaves, no more free. Wow, that's a big thing. But for us, how, how, hey, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity of the flesh. Well, how do I live godly then? Well, just be one another's slave. What do you mean? Be aware of what they want of you. Give them a slave service. Care about them. That invades every part of our lives. So we're not just independence. The danger is that for freedom, Christ has set us free. So I'm back to independence. I'm back to doing it my way. Just being my own man. He said, well, I am obedient to the Lord, but mm, no one's quite sure of that. The way it becomes manifest is when we, yes, see this scripture which says, obey your leaders. 
obey your leaders. That's where it becomes tangible, measurable. Once again, just to quote Phil Greenslade, he said the other day that Sinatra's famous song, I Did It My Way, is now in England the most requested song at funerals in this country. What a statistic. What a statement of being moving away from Christendom. The exact opposite. Now, most people at the end, this is the song they want sung. I did it my way. Having read that, he said he read Sinatra's biography just to kind of update himself. He thought, I don't really think that's a very good way. But everyone wants to say, no, I did it independently. Now, the church must have about it such a corporateness that, yes, we are willing to obey leadership. We're not just insisting on my own way. And I'm willing to say I demonstrate my obedience to God by having a good, healthy attitude to leadership. Now, it's very possible for that to be defiled and for controlling people to dominate people's lives. And we just need a few scary books around that we can tear that verse out of the Bible now. Because, well, some people abused it over there. And have you heard how they abused it there? Oh, very dodgy. Let's just tear that out then. Because that's very dodgy. No, it's very biblical. It's in the Bible. And so we're looking for obedience as the norm. But that doesn't mean we're not allowed to ask questions, God forbid. And we haven't got time now to get into a whole teaching about what that's all about. We had a seminar here from Ray Lowe while we've been together. It's a big subject in itself. But one of the things about this army, or two of the things we've seen so far, they were a believing army. They refused to let fear dominate their lives. Will you make that choice? So I'm not going to let fear dictate what I do. Can I afford it? What's going to happen to me? What will tomorrow bring? What if I don't marry him? Will another person ever come? Hey, you can just make decisions rooted in fear. Hopeless. If ever I'm in an elders meeting or something, we feel I'm being drawn, I say, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) One of the things I've felt God told me years ago, is that decision rooted on fear? Are we saying, what will happen if we don't? It comes in a conversation sometimes. If we don't, what will happen? You think, wait a minute, what's behind that? Is that, a, is that a faith decision or a fear decision? So we get out of fear and also we say, Lord, I want to obey and I want to, I want to work out my liberty in happy slavery to you and to my brothers and sisters and to express obedience in the house of God. All right, so this is one of the characteristics. They were willing. So Gideon says, well, we'll have three groups. And you don't find someone saying, why should we have three groups? I like it when we're all together. <laughs> it doesn't say that. It just said they went in three groups. It doesn't say, okay, if there's three groups, Gideon, I want to be in your group. They just got into groups. They just went. They just did what they were told. They got in line. And I believe that's a very pleasing thing to the Lord. I believe Jesus taught his disciples that way. He said, throw the net the other side. Okay, Lord, I don't understand it. We fished all night, but if you say so. We need that kind of confidence in leadership. Now, it's the kind of leader who says this in verse 17, look at me and do likewise. It's a leader who's willing to stand up and be counted. It's a leader who's not just saying to other people, Jesus said about the Pharisees, well, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do because there's no comparison. Now, we're looking for leadership, and by the grace of God, I believe that it's exemplified in so many of your lives, leaders that are willing to say, we'll lead from the front. 
We'll be there. You can count on us. It's so important, beloved. We don't say, hey, we're going to have a prayer meeting. I hope you'll all get there, but I'm a bit busy. I've got to be at this. Or we're going to have a big offering day. Now, come on, you people. You give. Well, you know, for me, it's a bit difficult. No, we're saying, we're leading. We're in there. We'll be at the prayer time. I'll out give you. We're leading. We've got to be in that kind of style, a lifestyle that's accessible. You can look at my family and raise it the way I did. That's the kind of frightening thing that a leader has to live with. And the, 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 the Timothy Titus passages that talk about the qualities of leaders, they're very much investigating how is their home? Is he held in honor? How are his children? How is his wife? How are, it's, you're saying, okay, I'm accessible. Come and look. Do as I do. It's that kind of leadership. Open. And also, here in these Old Testament stories, very often it's one isolated character. New Testament is teams of people. Yeah, there'll be a team captain, but it's teams of people. Corporate eldership, whose lives are exemplary by the grace of God. That's what we're looking for. And so we're saying, Lord Jesus, help us to have an army that will lead. Help us, O oh God, to work this through. Leaders providing the model Leaders expecting people to say, come on, let's go. Okay, where are we going? Let's do this thing. It's a very beautiful thing to see that kind of loyalty. It's a very ugly thing to see democracy in the church and the kind of thing that I first saw when I first went to what was called a business meeting at the local Baptist church. My home church, which I loved. And I went to a business meeting. I've never seen anything like it before. And I don't want to see anything like it again. There wasn't loyalty. I want my shout. I want to speak through the chair, which is always difficult. (laughs) Who will second me? You know, what are we talking about? That has nothing to do with God's order at all. It's totally foreign to the Bible, outrageous and ridiculous, and should be abandoned. This is God's way. God gives leaders and they lead. Now, we know all the teaching about humility and not ruling. It's all then there. That all has to be part of it. Now, the next thing, so we've seen they're not fearful, they're believing, they're obedient. The next thing is this, they use spiritual weapons. Okay? In the battle, they used spiritual weapons. The weapons of our warfare, Paul says, are not carnal. They're mighty through God. There's something about the weaponry of this end-time army, the church of the living God, that cannot be easily explained. And although we don't want to turn our back on the wisdom that we might see about certain efficiency in terms of management skills or whatever we want to bring into church, beware the danger that we lean too heavily on carnal abilities when we're, we're saying the weapons we use are not carnal, they're mighty through God. There's got to be a God dimension or what on earth are we? So it's very important for us to make sure we're using God's methods. So what is it? A sword for the Lord and for Gideon, but not a sword among them. 300 guys, not one sword among them. They're going out to fight. What are they fighting with? Lights, pitchers, and trumpets. What a silly way to go to war. The weapons are not what you'd expect in the battle. The weapons are the ones that God, I believe, worked into them. And I I believe it's, to me, I can't get too clear about uh, the lapping of the water deal. 
you bring your revelation. I've looked at several commentaries. They all disagree. God bless every one of them. We'll leave it. God wanted a small army, okay? He got down to 300. He could have said those who hop on their left foot, I think. Who cares? It's, uh, so I'm not finding a lot there. You may have found a lot there, but I haven't. Okay? But, and also, you'll find in some commentaries it's the breaking of the outer vessel that gives you the victory. But, you know, I don't think that's it either. I really don't. I mean, if you're in this battle and you imagine it, there's these thousands in the valley, like locusts. Thousands. And there's 300 guys up on the top. You know, I think if one guy got through on brokenness, you know, oh, I'm through on brokenness. I think someone in the valley would just go, poing. I thought I saw a light up there. But it's okay. He's gone. I don't think it's about a guy getting through on brokenness. I don't, I don't think that's what the battle is about. I don't think that's what it's all about. I think there are other weapons in the battle. I think the first one is unity. They worked together. They had to work together. There was a, a, actually a plan. We'll come back to the detail of it very briefly in a moment. But there was a plan that totally depended on them acting as one. Being together. That was the whole genius of the plan. You must do it together. So they were to go around this valley. I assume there was a hillside that encircled maybe horseshoe style around this valley. And uh, they're looking down on these thousands and thousands of soldiers. And these 300 guys are told what to do. They have to space out around the hillside. They have to take their lamp. Uh, they hide it under a pitcher. They take their trumpet. And all together they will smash it. And all has to happen together. It's the unity that's the genius of the thing. Without the unity, it's a waste of time. Without the fact they stand together, it's lost. And beloved, that's the key. We talk about being a family of churches. To me, I find these meetings wonderful and deeply frustrating. Because I see people I love who have flown thousands of miles and I say, hi, how are you? Give them a hug, have three minutes, and then, well, I'll be seeing you. That is agony. And some are in hugely difficult situations. And some, I see as I'm driving down the road, I think, oh, look, there's John. And, look, and I think, oh, and I haven't even said hello yet. Now, Stonely was bad enough, but at least we had a week to find one another. But this is so difficult. And, yeah, we're spread all around the world. But we still have to be united. Acting as one. Without acting as one, we've lost it. This is so fundamental to who we are. I can imagine this happening. See, it's easy to be one when we're together, isn't it? I mean, on this sort of occasion, you're not going to get many people in the corridors complaining, God forbid. But when we're together, you know, we can, we can do our dance together. We can throw one another off the... You know, you think, they're going to catch me, I think. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you can... Do your conga and that wonderful word that Linda brought. You know, we hang in there. We hang in there. But it's one thing hanging in there when you're all together. It's another thing when, wow, now we're back to here. Now we're right across to Australasia. Where is it, Australasia? I don't bump into him anymore every day in the office. I don't hear him laugh anymore. <laughs> you know, right over there now. We're in the dark. We're not in touch. Right down at the bottom of Africa now. Right across in the Brazil. And I think, God, these people are so far away. 
it's not so easy to be utterly united. It's possible for stories to go around, rumors. I love Dave Stroud's illustration about what happened when he changed his meeting and just phoned a few people. And just a few people phoning, the whole story gets crazy. Completely lost in the telling. Sometimes that gets very serious. Very serious. Have you heard that? I want to urge you not to give yourself to things that promote disloyalty. Loyalty in a great celebration is easy. This isn't real life. It's out there. Disappointed. Didn't get the phone call you expected. See, the Apostle Paul had it in Corinth. He says, you, you said I, I was coming. I, I couldn't come. This happened and I wanted to come, but I was prevented. Satan hindered me. This happened, that happened. And the tensions, and they're saying, oh yeah, he says this, but... You know, he said, no, no, our yes is yes. And Paul, the early church, they lived with these tensions of, hey, I thought you said. No, no, our word is true, but we're tugged, we're pulled. It's very easy, oh yeah, Apostle Paul, eh? He lived with those tensions. We can, we can have difficulties like that, where our word is questioned, where half-truths go round. I, I can imagine this experience on the, the mountainside in, the, uh, in this battle of Midian. Battle of Midian. It's a unique battle that's got something about it. And I can imagine these guys going out to the battle. Can you imagine it? 300 guys, and they're shuffling along in the dark. You know, I've got, I've got my lamp. I've got my torch. I've got my pitch. I've got my trumpet. I hope Gideon knows what he's doing. <laughs> can you imagine that? I hope he knows what he's doing. What do we have to do? We have to go round the valley, right round the hillside. Is that it? Is that it, Dan? Yes, yeah, that's it, Dan. You doing, that what, Jacob, you happy with that? Yeah, well, that's what he said. Let's do it, okay? Right, off we go then. All ready? Ready? Got ready? It's the Congo, you know, we're ready. Let's go. Off we go. We're going. And then you think, you stopping here, Dan? Yeah, I guess I stop here. Well, God bless you, Dan. A lot of them, aren't there? <laughs> so, oh, come on, Jacob. On we go. All right, on we go. Hey, Jacob. Yeah. I'm stopping here. All right. You go on a bit. Okay. All right, it's going, going, going. You still there? Yeah, I'm here, I'm here. here. You still there? Yeah, I'm here. I can't see you. I know you can't see me. I'm here. You, you still there, Dan? Yeah, I'm here. I can't see you. I know. Anybody else? Yeah, I think they're all there. I hope so. Awful lot of them, aren't there? You scared? Yeah, I'm scared. <laughs> what do we have to do? Well, I remember what he said. What did, what did he say? <laughs> he said something about, you have to shout. When he shouts, we all shout. Blow the trumpet and smash the thing and hold it up. <coughs> yeah, okay. Ooh, a lot of them, aren't there? You <laughs> think, what do we have to shout? I can't remember. <laughs> Ask. All right. Hey, Joseph, what do we have to shout? I don't remember. Ask, ask. So it goes down the line. What do we have to shout? Come Simeon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Shout a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Oh, okay. Thank you. Got it. Okay. Hey, we shout a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Okay. Got it. 
what is it? Oh, got it. So I got it now. Got it. What is it? Oh, it's, uh, it's, um, something about Gideon's, uh, hold on. It's, um, it's, uh, Gideon's got a sword. Right. So it's, oh, thanks. Right, right. Gideon's got a sword? Hey, have you heard? Gideon's got a sword. I haven't got a sword. I got this stupid trumpet and light. And Gideon's got, have you heard? Gideon's got a sword. We're going to smash these things, blow the trap. We'll be picked. He's got a sword. Just like leaders, look after number one. I'm off. Right. Gideon. Actually, I remember sitting at the Downs Bible Week in the stand an hour or so before I preached my final word, which was on Gideon about 25 years ago. I'm sitting there saying, Lord, please give me an illustration that shows the challenges of unity when, I don't know, we're separated. Because we are now about 30 churches. And, I mean, we spread as north as Crawley, I think. I don't, I don't think we'd reach the great northern outpost of Bedford. Newcastle's off the map completely, you know. And I was seriously saying, Lord, it's great while we're here, all 2,000 of us. In Plumpton. It's great while we're together. But what's it going to be like when we're, we're back in our churches? And I'm praying, and I, remember, I can remember it vividly, being up in that stand, just praying, God, give me. And I felt God gave me one. Just, that was 25 years ago, when we were spread around Kent, South London, and Sussex. And the challenges... Whatever happened? <laughs> Same truth holds. Can we thank God for decades of loyalty? Decades of people saying, no, no, we're in. But have you heard about what he said? No, no, we're in. But that happened, and you understand, why did they do that? They stopped Stanley Bible. No, we're in. Trust them, believe in them. We're in. It's easy why we're here. It's like, there we go. Have you heard? Terry didn't even sit next to Wendy on the platform. Dodgy. <laughs> if we're going to build something that's going to reach the world and change the expression of Christianity, We've got a whole dear. You've got to say in your heart, I will believe in her. I will believe in him. I will ask questions, but I will not believe stuff that isn't verified, true. It doesn't seem true to what I believe he is. It's a decision you make in your heart. Because the way this battle, it's got nothing to do with one guy breaking his... It's to do with, we do it together. If we don't do it together, there's no battle one. One guy, oh, gone. 300 guys, 
Boom! Trumpet! Get it on! What's going on? Terrifying. The thing worked. We haven't time to look at all the points now. We're nearly gone here. Let me just quickly give you headlines. Each stood in his place. Right, that's a phrase I would have spent a few minutes on. Each stood in his place. There wasn't just a cluster here, then a big gap. Now, the, the genius of it was everyone had to be in the right place. Now, in this story, there's conformity. For us, there's going to be diversity. But as we say goodbye to Peter and Susan, as we say goodbye to Stephen Midge, as we say goodbye to Eden and Faye going off from Dubai back to the Philippines, as we say goodbye to people going all over the world, the key thing is, are you in the right place? And as you think, am I meant to go up to Glasgow? Should I go across? When I go to university, you mobilize guys and girls. When I go to university, what's the right place? <laughs> I love that, okay. <laughs> but some of you may not have to go there, all right? <laughs> but you need to find. Don't just drift. Don't say, well, they do the best course in. That's secondary. That's secondary. Important, but secondary important. Are we doing something? Are we planning a church there? Is there a right... It's, it's, being in the right place is fundamental. They were in the right place. Each one was working properly. Another quick headline. Both hands busy. Did you notice that? I wonder how they did it even. Talk about both hands busy. You've got torch, pitcher, trumpet. Hold on. I'll put this, what are you? <laughs> You're that busy. You're there. Both hands full. We're working. Not identical in contrast to this. But each one. Weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Giving ourselves totally to what God gives us. And then lastly, we'll make the next step. Penultimate. An army with strategy and dependence. Strate there is a strategy. There's a, it's kind of crazy. God says, through the 300, I will give them to you. Right? You're, you're going to win. It's God's battle. It's God's victory. Beloved, as we go out in this Isaiah 9 picture of the increase of his government, there'll be no end. That's the undergirding truth that's captivating my soul. That will happen. That's bottom line. Revelation tells me it happens. That's bottom line undergirds everything, it will happen that way. God will do it. Meanwhile, strategy is not irrelevant. We can swing to one side and only pray for revival. Say, oh God, send revival. And just be praying. And I'm sure you won't misunderstand me about the importance of prayer. Or we can become activists. And statistics and depend on all kinds. We must see both. They had their strategy, they were thoroughly dependent on God. If God didn't own them, they're going to look very silly. 300 on. See how many you can get. I got two, how many do you get? You know, they're just going. Without God owning it, it's a joke. But there was a strategy. They did it in the middle watch, in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, it says they did it when the watch is changing. So there's guys coming back off watch. They're tired, weary. They've been out there a few hours. There's other guys waking up. Oh, am I turning on watch? There's people in the camp moving about. What are you doing? There's somebody in this tent. So moving in the tent. Maybe a few nightmares. <laughs> you know, God's on the move. But there's action. There's people around. And suddenly, suddenly, from all around, there's these 300 lights trumpet sounding, a shout 
for the Lord and for Gideon. God's already given one of them a nightmare. It's the Lord of Gideon. There's already people troubled by the dreams God's given them. God's working, but they had a strategy. Let's have both. I thank God for the hard work that's being done in churches now. Working hard, kids' clubs, visiting homes week in, week out, pouring rain through the winter, knocking the door. How's Johnny? He's all right. He likes your club. Good. I'm glad he likes coming. God bless you. Week in, week out. And then one day, can you come in and talk? Yes. Got our strategy. Alphas, kids' clubs, supporting... Uh, the poor, caring for this, international, student work. We've got our strategies. If you haven't got your strategy, just say, oh God, come. No, you must have a strategy. But you must pray. You must depend on God. They had strategy. They had a dependence on God. And then, last of all, they were an army which honoured the whole people of God. God cut it back to get obedience, commitment, clarity. When the victory is running and the Midianites start fighting one another, it's as they drew their swords on one another, there's chaos, then they flee. Gideon sends a word at the end of the chapter. I didn't read right to the end. At the end of the chapter, Gideon sent messages, verse 24, throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites. Take the waters before them. So he pulls in the nation. He hasn't got that elitist heart. He doesn't say, well, actually, we are the special ones. Uh, Where were you when we were fighting? Where were you when we, the elite company? No, no, he wasn't like that. He he said, no, this is Israel's victory. Come on, let's all own it together. We need that heart, beloved. We've got values, we're family, we love one another. But we're thrilled to have on our platform and in our seminars, people from other settings, other contexts, dear, dear friends, like CJ, other men and women that we honour and respect in other circles, men like Mark Stibby, who I know have blessed many of you, dear Stuart Bell and other guys that will be in and out throughout this week, Phil Greenslade. You know, we just say, no course, we're part of a whole. We, we've got our sense of comradeship. Like Paul had churches that were his family. But we honour the whole body of Christ. We beware the danger of elitism or anything of that sort. We honour the body of Christ. We honour the anointed servants of God. And we see a great, great victory. It will be like the battle of Midian. That's a biblical promise. The increase of the government of Christ will be like the battle of Midian. It's going to be like that, sister. And some of these features are utterly vital for us to get the job done, to see the Lord of glory exalted in our day, to make him the famous one in your town, in your city. When we sing songs like that, I often think of Bombay. I just just think of these crowds. And I think you're the famous one. I think, Lord, you're not yet. And those sort of things are going through my mind often when we're singing those songs. Lord, you're meant to be famous here. These are your crowds, your people. And you're not famous here yet, but we will make you famous by your grace. We want to see you famous. We want to see the people who sit in darkness see a great light. That's what Matthias says in his commentary on Isaiah 9. He refers to the battle of Midian. He says, sitting in darkness, suddenly, a great light at the battle of Midian. Let's stand to pray. I think we must sing.